The Tom Woods Show, episode 1771. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody, you ever get the feeling that you're living in a completely different reality from your friends and coworkers? I have a funny feeling you could use a haven of sanity right about now. Well, a wildly disproportionate percentage of the dwindling number of normal people in the world can be found inside the Tom Woods Show elite. Join me there and find yourself a haven of sanity. Entry is at supportinglisteners.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Michael Rechtenwald is back on the show. If you've followed this program at all, you know Michael Rechtenwald is the former NYU professor who spent most of his career as a Marxist, then came out against all this so-called woke stuff. And by the way, that just that term makes me crazy. I, I can't imagine that you would use the word woke to refer to people who hold entirely conventional, predictable views about everything. If anybody's woke, it's people who figure out what's wrong with those ideas. But anyway, don't get me started on that. Anyway, Rechtenwald is the most recent addition to the faculty at libertyclassroom.com because he's created a course for us on postmodernism, critical theory, and cultural studies. Fantastic. Just thrilled to have him on board. He's written numerous books that are worth your time. And we're talking today about a foray into fiction that he's made uh, since his move away from Marxism and toward our side. And it's called Thought Criminal. And I wanted to discuss it with him today. Michael, welcome back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Jeez, man, you just crank out books like uh, like Woods in his prime, which was like 10 years ago. I, <laughs> I can't even imagine keeping up the pace that you've set. It's unbelievable. So give us, without any spoilers, of course, what you would want to give us as a teaser or background for what's going on in your book, uh, Thought Criminal. Okay, yeah. So basically the book started while I was, you know, we were in the midst of this pandemic and, um, you know, I was just not, I didn't want to deal with a lot of the uh, details about what was going on. Didn't want to engage in um, any kind of conspiracy theories and so forth, because, you know, with with everything that's going on, it lends itself, to, it's, it's hard for me not to speculate about what's happening. And so what I did is started to think about, uh, I was about to write a book on, um, called The Pandemic Economy, and uh, I just found it to be overwhelming. But I had things to say, but I found that I couldn't really say them in, in nonfiction. I found nonfiction to be too constraining for what I wanted to get at. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking through some articles about, uh, and I come across in, about AI in particular, and I come across this article about human brain cloud interfaces, and it's about how uh, nanobots will be used to connect our brains directly to the internet. And, of course, I had known about this before, but brain cloud computing, they're saying, is about, you know, 20, 30 years off. And uh, so it's about how these nanobots attach themselves to the neurons and then allow direct interfacing with the cloud. So then I come across another article that says that this thing called the ARC gene looks like viruses when it collects itself into, um, like, shell-like virus-looking entities inside the brain. And this is the main means by which memory and other forms of uh, brain activity are conducted. So I thought, why not make a, a novel about how nanobots disguised as viruses 
would attach themselves to the brain, to the neurons, and connect and conduct this kind of interactive uh, brain cloud computing. And, you know, they, they pout this as something that's going to be just a utopia. But I said, what if this got into hands of totalitarians and they wanted to control what people were thinking? And uh, that's how the novel got started. How long did this take you? Three months. It was crazy work. I've never done a novel. I can't imagine what it would be like. It's, it's very difficult writing a novel. So I've written fiction before. I've written a book of short stories called The Thief and Other Stories. Never had written a novel. Wasn't sure I could do it. You know, people, I was disabused of the idea by a lot of people. They say, you know, novels are really difficult. Long form fiction is really difficult. And I agree. It's, it's one of the most difficult genres I've ever uh, undertaken. But all I did is sort of set the constraints of the novel in terms of what were the conditions that would uh, set up the plot. And, and the plot just unraveled from there. I wrote uh, 12 to 15 hours every day, seven days a week. If you, well, that's insane. <laughs> if you, <laughs> let's say you had to put a number on it, what percent of the story you're telling do you see as at least conceivable? And what percent is you know, a kind of a poetic license. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, pretty much all conceivable. The question is whether it will actually evolve that way. It's possible, but, you know, it's not necessarily the case. And that, that is what one of the things I wanted to get across, that things don't have to go this way, but they could. And uh, that's sort of the premise of the book is what would it be like if it did go this way? And uh, so I would say that it's 100% conceivable. It's not necessarily 100% probable. It's possible. All right. Now, in terms of some of the themes that come up, they really are going to be quite familiar to anybody who's been observing anything because even if you get 30 pages into the book, you're already uncovering things like uh, loss of individual autonomy, uh, cancel culture, uh, loss of privacy, a kind of cult of academia and science, punishment of people who deviate. I mean, this is doesn't take long to get started, let's say. Yeah, it jumps right in. And uh, yeah, the, the loss of autonomy, the loss of oneself is really one of the major themes of the book, the possibility of the erasure of the self in this thing called collective mind, which what I posited was collective mind would be like this supercomputing cloud in which all of these various clouds that are now privately held would be collectivized and owned you know, by the state. And of course, not that we necessarily want to connect everything in the novel to what's going on in November 2020, but you know, it's a little bit hard to resist. <laughs> and I, I mean, yeah. in particular, right now, one of the main themes that I hear is that Western society, but particularly America, Americans are too individualistic yeah. to be able to conquer this virus. If only they had the collectivist mentality that we see in the East, they would be more successful. So the propaganda is just unrelenting. It never stops. And so, of course, we have this public health issue right now, and they're going to handle it ideologically, and they're going to use it and exploit it to try to advance their philosophy. Indeed. And that's part of what's going on. It's this, this idea that ideology finally gets incarnated into technology in the novel and then becomes a superordinate thing that can't 
seemingly cannot be overcome. And that, that's the whole way the plot evolves. It's, I just keep getting these characters into these situations in which it looks like there's no way out. And that, that's basically the premise. Can we talk about whether in real life you think there is a way out? Because you are, you seem kind of pessimistic. I look at your Facebook updates and it's pretty dreary, but that could be because you've, you know the kinds of people who, whose ambitions are to run things and you know what their worldview is very intimately. So maybe that would lead somebody to pessimistic conclusions. But I would say that right now, the thing that has driven me more toward pessimism than anything else has been the compliance with the lockdowns. Apparently, three quarters of people in the UK are supporting the lockdowns that were just announced by Boris Johnson. I mean, it's unbelievable. They've had all year to find out the truth about the matter and to be outraged at what was done to their society. And they want more. They, they support more. They're cheering the destruction of their own lives. I never thought it would get to this point. Neither did I. And I, I'm, that's, it's really hastened. Um, and, you know, one of the themes of the book is that people have to be complicit in their own subjection. If they're, yes. they're going to uh, be taken in by this kind of total conformity, which ends up wrapping itself in with the powers that be and producing a totalitarianism because they have let it happen. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. But the novel has a happy ending, I should say. I won't, I won't, so speaking towards the, the thing about uh, pessimism. Well, that, okay, that much is good for people to know because actually I wonder if some people might have hesitated to buy it because they just think, I just don't think I can take another, <laughs> you know, more <laughs> depression right about now. I <laughs> could use it. No, it's, it's actually very, uh, it's very liberatory in the end. It's, it should be very, it, it gives it gives a, a kind of a formula for how, you know, not just in terms of how they undertake the uh, the escape, if you will, but just in terms of how, you know, what what is the what is the principle that would save us? I'm glad you mentioned it because I didn't want to spoil things. So I'm glad as long as people know that one thing about it. That's that'll be the one tiny spoiler. It's not really a spoiler, generally you expect things to work out in a book and that's what happens here. So let's talk though about uh, the future of, you know, our society. The trends are not particularly encouraging. You know, I have a couple friends who still nevertheless are fairly optimistic in general about where society is going because they just compare it to, they say the collectivism of, you know, 50, 60 years ago around most of the world is generally gone and we, you know, on net are better off than we were then. And we have, we still have a lot of tools at our disposal despite the problems with big tech that are very liberating. Yes. And we still have, you know, ways of spreading information that we didn't have before. And we still, even if they struggle sometimes, we still have more sources of news and information than ever before. So, you know, is that, is, is any of that a counter to, you know, maybe your dystopian vision? Well, I, I posit really early on that there are always gaps and that we need to exploit these gaps. The system can never be completely closed. There isn't a totalitarian regime that can completely close all the gaps. And uh, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm holding out for, is that we will make our way through all this and we will emerge and we will be able to retain ourselves in the face of all this uh, 
I throw that word totalitarian around, but I, I think it is pretty clear that that's what we're dealing with. We're, n- we're not dealing with totalitarianism per se. We're dealing with totalitarian creep. And it's, it is definitely creeping on us, right? With every new masking a mandate or lockdown mandate in different parts of the world, this is just one totalitarian creep after another. So, um, you know, it's, there's, there's a good reason to be very, very alarmed. Uh, but I, I agree that you know, here we are talking and so far we're not shut down and your program's not shut down. And I'm still able to post those pessimistic remarks on Facebook. Uh, although I think some of them are being uh, suppressed, <laughs> frankly. But, you know, we're, we're still, um, you know, I put this book out, you know, so I want to say that I agree with you. There are obviously clear paths, and we have to keep exploiting them. And I use that term not in the Marxist sense by, by any means, but I mean just, you know, filling those gaps and, and finding our way through these mandates and these um, these lockdowns and these various ways that they're trying to, you know, the powers that be are trying to hem us in. Yeah, I don't know what else to, how else to put it. Now, meanwhile, I hate to bring Hitler into this because everybody brings Hitler into it, but... Oh, Hitler always. But every once in a while, you get people saying, you know, talking about uh, Hitler and, and Trump's like Hitler and his supporters are like Nazis. And then they have that photo of people at a Nazi rally and there's the one guy with his arms folded and they're all saying, yeah, yeah, we would be like that guy. Right. Now, look, look, I'm not going to, you know, probably shouldn't speculate as to who would have been a Nazi under what circumstances, but I am telling you something. If ever there were a group (laughs) that I would not count on not to be Nazis, it would be these people. Because (laughs) these are the people who they have to latch on to everything that's popular in society. So, so the idea that they would have been anti-slavery in 1850 is laughable. There's no way. Given the way right now they feel morally compelled to let everybody know that they have every single approved opinion under the sun. Oh, but in 1850, don't worry, they would have been courageous enough to have the most politically unpopular opinion of all that even most northerners didn't even share. Come on. Right. I mean, the whole the whole thing that ties people together like this under these kinds of regimes is conformity. And conformity is the real enemy here. And that is a mindless conformity to outrageously uh, posited constraints. And so those who are the most susceptible to conformity are the ones that are most likely, in my opinion, to be the perfect subjects under something like Nazism or Stalinism. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I personally think, I'm I'm sorry I'm obsessed with the virus, but I think we all are right now because of what's been going on. Yeah. But I feel like that's got to be something that even, regardless of what exactly the path is going to be, it will eventually be burned out one way or another. It will eventually stop. Hopefully, yes. But after it has stopped, we can't just say, well, that was an interesting historical episode. I think we got to harp on this. For example, after the 2008 financial crisis, I felt like it's very important even during good economic times to make sure we try to explain to people what happened during this episode so that when another one happens, we don't fall into the same errors. 
Well, that is like of no significance whatsoever compared to the virus, in my opinion. There need to be documentaries. We need to talk about the collateral damage, all the deaths, all the depression, the suicides, all the other totally predictable things, the ruined lives, the ruined livelihoods, the disruptions of society, the deformations of society, the interferences with relationships and friendships and normal human interaction. We cannot hit this enough to try to even maybe after the fact convince people or if we can't convince people who were alive that they were wrong, convince their kids that their parents were wrong, frankly. Yeah, I try to get into that in the book in terms of how what, what people are missing, you know, what what are we lost here? You know, just like, for example, walking outside in the sun and enjoying the sun, you know, beaming down on your face and feeling that without any interference and just without this this constant sense that you're under surveillance in some way, by your compeers mostly, right? And that there's never, first of all, there's never anyone around, you know, when you're walking anymore. Uh, It seems like everything is a deserted landscape in all these places. And so, and just, just, you know, they're missing all the camaraderie and the, the carefree collection of people going to different places like at a bar or a restaurant or anything, a baseball game. And just everything has become uh, kind of like a, a pall has been cast over everything. And I just try to, you know, I have these scenes where I'm trying to make clear what's been lost here. What, what are we losing? And I think that's got to be... We've, we've got to harp on that uh, long after this is over so that it doesn't get, uh, we don't get another, another case of this kind of uh, complete conformity and complete uh, complicity in our own subjection. Well, one more quick thing about this, then we'll get more explicitly back into the book. The mask thing I haven't spent that much time on because my view, I felt like people were talking way too much about masks and way too little about all the other restrictions. Sure. I would wear a mask if I could have, you know, a million activities back, and then I want to get rid of the mask. So the order in which I want to do things is I want to live, and then I'll deal with the mask problem. But the more I think about it, the mask kind of is the symbol of the whole thing. And and given that I've looked at all the charts all around the world when mask mandates were introduced, and there's clearly no connection between when the mask mandates were introduced and – how many cases there are. There's just none. If I show you the graph and I say, when do you think they implemented the mask mandate? You'll always get it wrong. You'll say, oh, probably up at the top here. And then after the mask mandate, it started coming down. You'll always get it wrong. So I've looked at those and I feel like I get Thaddeus Russell has a good point. I get why the left loves the mask. It's not, you know, yeah, I'm sure some of them think it's public health, but Instinctively, they love the egalitarian aesthetic of it, of all of us wearing the mask and individuality being suppressed. But yeah. it's abnormal and dehumanizing, frankly. We should – I can't believe I have to actually make an argument that it's a good thing for us to see each other's faces. Right. And I believe that it's going to have a bad – I can't prove this. It's just a natural uh, instinct to believe that this is going to be very bad for children and, frankly, babies in the long run. It's not normal oh, yes. for babies to look around and not be able to tell that that somebody's smiling at them. Yeah, I have a new grandchild just born a little over a month ago who has never seen my face, for example. Uh, I've visited a baby many times, but I've never been able to because uh, my daughter is, is really nervous because she's been, you know, told to be nervous. And I've never, the child has never seen my face. The other day I was driving down the street and a guy was standing on the corner, apparently waiting for the bus. 
he was wearing a gas mask, okay, a gas mask, and he's waving at me because I stopped short of the white line by about 10 feet, and he's waving at me, pointing to the white line, like, move up to the line, move up to the line. You're too far back from the line. So, I mean, it's just this kind of, uh, this constant, like, it's really these, it's brought out the little authoritarian in, in these people. You know, and the other another day I was walking down the street hundreds of yards from any other individual and I didn't have a mask on because I don't put it on except when I go into, I have to eat, you know. So if I go into a grocery store and I require a mask, I put it on because I've got to eat. Uh, and this guy's screaming at me, where's your mask? Where's your mask? So it isn't just, it isn't just collectivism and the erasure of the individual. It's also the authoritarianism in every little, these people that harbor a secret will to constrain other people and to see others constrained as they're constrained. So they're, they're also, you know, they're, they're authoritarians. Well, so this gets back to something we said earlier about the, one of the themes in your book about it. In some way, you have to be complicit in your own degradation as part of their vision. Right. And so how much of what we're facing, either in the, the plot of your book or in the plot of real life, is a matter of people who are naturally inclined toward freedom and decency who are just propagandized into the opposite? And how much is it people are actually kind of inclined to follow and obey? And they're just, so, so people are just kind of leading them down a path they're inclined to go down anyway. Yeah, it looks like some people, there's obviously, you know, the propaganda and also the, you know, the authorities that are putting this on us, right? There's no question about that. It's not like people are spontaneously trying to constrain themselves. There, There's obviously been this kind of a constant drumbeat that we must do this, we must do that. And so, but there's a kind of compulsion on the part of some people to, to obey and to really push this obeyance on others. And I think that there is a small percentage of people who are resistors, you know, and uh, to me, in the book as well, it's the resistors that hold out the hope for us. Because without these resistors, we have nothing but, you know, the, the compliers and uh, the complicit. And so I think it's a good proportion that are actually reveling in it, strangely enough. Uh, and that they've turned it into a kind of aesthetic, you know, a fashion statement, not only, but an aesthetic, more broadly speaking. Uh, it is a kind of symbol of something, a symbol of, of my ability and my willingness to be herded, to be nondescript, to, be, to bury my individuality for the sake of the collective. Now, so far, I've taken the liberty of directing us to particular themes in your book, but let me give you the opportunity to develop further some themes that you want people to know about. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the other themes is how, well, you brought it up somewhat, the academic world and what its role is in all this. There is a, a, a university in the book called Transhuman University. Short for, the short version is TransU, <laughs> and uh, that's not an accident. And the idea there is that uh, this kind of new transhumanism is something that we have to look at. And I know that's been a debate in libertarian circles, transhumanism and what it represents. Does it represent liberty or does it represent something else? It depends. 
And uh, this is something I want to get into quite a bit, uh, again, is the connection between libertarianism and transhumanism. Uh, what will it be? What will it represent this, you know, possibilities for the individual, first of all, to live longer, have more capacities, have greater abilities, you know, these enhancements, right? These enhancements, which could make us into superhumans. Or will it end up being something that's controlled by a small elite and that will therefore probably end up constraining us even further? That, that's a big theme in the book. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, as you know, I'm not a Luddite, so I don't reject transhumanism out of hand. But I, I do reject the idea that it necessarily is a liberating thing that by, based on enhancements and all these things that will become superhumans. We may become subhumans based on it. It depends. Well, even a, a, a tamer thing, just technology itself. Yes. There are some people who think that technology is necessarily liberating. Now, I, it has the great potential to be liberating. Right. And obviously, I would rather live for example, in a world that has the internet than one that doesn't. Right. But at the same time, you know, okay, I think the internet has shown us something about mankind that maybe we suspected but didn't really want to know, which is that you can no longer say, well, people just don't have access to information. Well, yeah, now they do. I mean, at, the, at, at your fingertips, you can read anything, you can find out anything, you can study anything, and no one wants to. <laughs> I mean, very, very, very few. And But what they do know how to do, though, is that if everybody's profile picture shows them wearing a mask, then they know to wear a mask. Or if their profile picture has this or that symbol on it, well, they know that they should put that symbol on. So it is a way of generating conformity far more than it should have been, frankly. It should have been the opposite. Absolutely. And then you have people that are searching unusual information or things that, you know, are out there and that are actually verifiable, but yet if you mention them, that you get, you know, you immediately get dubbed a conspiracy theorist when in fact, you know, some of these things are conspiracies that you're not, you're not a theorist, you're a, theor you're a conspiracy empiricist, you know, that you're actually finding empirical data to support some of these, there are conspiracies, uh, and there, you know, conspiracy is just an undertaking by several people in connection with each other and in agreement with each other to affect a particular end. And so th these things are easily discoverable. And yet every time you mention them, you're a conspiracy theorist. And I'd like to introduce a new term, conspiracy empiricist. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, look, just think of the last time you and a few friends conspired to play a joke on somebody. Right. Okay, that was a kind of a conspiracy. So you're telling me that, yeah, people will get together to play practical jokes on each other, but they won't get together for their own financial gain? <laughs> I mean, uh, pretty unlikely. Right, so, exactly. Yeah, and then uh, that reminds me of what uh, the uh, the late Butler Schaefer used to say, which was that I'm not interested in conspiracy theories. I'm interested in the facts about conspiracies. Exactly. That was always the way the way he put it. Well, uh, any final words? Um, just that I'll see you in uh, outside of Houston there for the Ron Paul Symposium. Yeah, looking forward to that tomorrow, and um, I assume our paths will actually cross tonight. So that's going to be that's going to be great. And I hope people will check out the book we've been discussing, which is Thought Criminal by Michael Rechtenwald. I've linked to it on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1771. Thanks again, Michael. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. 
All right, folks, as we head into the weekend, let me give you something to chew on. And that is a blog by a Tom Wood Show listener, On the Other Hand with Dan. And you'll find it at otherhandwithdan.com. Dan, who is your host, is a physician assistant, speaker, and now writer. And the blog is his outlet, just as I've been telling you guys to do, to voice concerns and opinions on various topics from his perspective as a medical provider and also informed by his prior experience as a Green Beret. He says he became aware of libertarian philosophy after the 2008 presidential election and by 2012 was reorienting his path a a bit and trying to get his life in line with his belief. So on his site, he covers a wide range of issues from current events and politics to his religious faith and experiences as a father to his awesome sons. So check that out, otherhandwithdan.com. This is the kind of thing that instead of burdening his friends and family with a million emails about what he's thinking, he shares with the world what he's thinking. And it's a Tom Wood Show listener, so you know it's going to be worth your time. So check it out, otherhandwithdan.com, linked on the show notes page. I'd love to promote that website you've been dreaming of starting. Make sure you get your hosting through my link and I will give you some nice publicity that'll make sure it's not tumbleweeds going by when you launch that site. And I've also got some free tutorials and other great benefits. All of them are free. Just check out how to get them over at tomwoods.com slash publicity. See you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.